Morning, everyone. How are we doing? Fantastic, even if you didn't say anything to that question. Fantastic. Uh, it is good to have each and every one of you with us this morning, and we are continuing our series in the book of John. We're in the third chapter. And last week, the very first part of John chapter 3, we saw the story of Jesus and Nicodemus having this conversation. And Nicodemus being this excellent professor and teacher of the law, he was absolutely confused about how to have a relationship with God. He thought a relationship with God was based on how well he performed the rules and regulations that they had kind of invented. And Jesus reminds Nicodemus of two things. One, he clearly shows that he is the Messiah. He is the overcoming God King, which is the theme throughout all of John. All of John is showing us time and time again through the stories and the teaching and the events in the book of John that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the anointed one, the promised one, the Christ. And only in him and him alone can he overcome what we need done. Only he can take care of the sin, the shame, the guilt, the pain, the sorrow, death, and even the devil. Only Christ is able to fix that for us because he is God and he is king. And there is no one like him. He is unique and he is our friend as he approaches his role that God gave him. And God gave him the role that he's communicating to Nicodemus that religion with God, a relationship with God, is based on a heart change. It's based on a new birth. It's based on being born again, regenerated, having new life, having the Holy Spirit in our lives, making this heart of stone and death into a heart of flesh. It's not based on rules and regulations and how well you do, because I'm telling you, no matter how well you think you're doing at life, you are failing. You are not doing that great at life. You disappoint God, you have idols in your heart, you have anger in your heart, you have jealousy, disappointments, envy, and you have doubt. And I'm not just picking on you. I'm telling you exactly how it is in my heart, too. None of us are perfect. None of us are right before God. And the more often we think that our relationship is based on a set of goodness that we're doing, we are setting ourselves up for failure because you can never be good enough for God. Paul addresses this very question and I believe gives us a very clear solution in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, and we're going to get back to John, but this is a capstone idea that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about and can, can, continues in our next section in John chapter 3. But Paul says to the church at Colossae, he says in verse uh, 20 of chapter 2, he says, If with Christ you have died to the elementary principles of the world, whereas if you were still alive in the world, why do you submit to regulations of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are perishing as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Paul says, if you've already died in Christ, why are you consumed with don't touch, don't do, don't say, don't look, don't, 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 don't? He says, none of those things change the root problem we have, the struggle with sin. And if we have a struggle with sin, where do we turn for that solution? Not to more rules and regulations, judging you and judging others. It turns to Christ saying, help. I'm struggling with sin. And making more rules is not going to be the solution. It leads to an arrogance and a pride, just like Nicodemus had. He was arrogant and prideful that he was the spectacular teacher of the law that everyone looked up to, everyone respected, because he covered his mirrors on Friday night so his wife wouldn't see gray hairs on Saturday. He made sure that he killed the chickens that laid eggs on the Sabbath. And he made sure not to gargle with vinegar if he had a sore throat on the Sabbath. He just drank it. How did that help him with sin? Not one bit. He was still dead in his trespasses and sins. And Jesus set the record straight. You want to be saved? You want a relationship with God? Do you want to have communion with him? Be able to speak to him and he speaks to you? Do you want your worship to be joyful and unhinged with greatness? You need to be born again. You need to submit yourself to God and God will make you alive to him through Christ. And in John chapter 3, verse 16 through the following, and I don't know if we need to go through John 3, 16. That's a famous verse. Everybody knows it. It's at every football and baseball game. So, I mean, I don't know. Do we, do we need to go through that verse, or are we okay with that? Uh, the verse reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all fine on that. Can we just get to the next verse because we got that one down? No. No. Pastor Tim does not skip verses because they're familiar or they're hard. But I'll tell you why we're going to stick on this verse. Every day when I go home, and I've said this before, every day when I drive home, I drive from here to Pueblo West and I take 50. Do you know what happens when you turn off of... Um, Pueblo Boulevard onto 50. Do you know what happens? Well, yes, I do speed up because the road is designed for more than 55, but that's not the point. And that's not official. I'm not going on record for that if someone's watching this. I turn onto 50, and no matter what my day has had, I see the mountain. And sometimes the sun is sending, sometimes the sun is right in my eyes. Um, but no matter how people are driving, I look at those mountain ranges and I, it just makes me happy. And for seven years, it's not gotten boring, it's not gotten old, and every time I see it, I just, just have this little smile that I go, God, thank you for allowing me to see something so beautiful. And people see that when they look at an ocean. I get it. People can see that and get that same excitement if they look at a cornfield. I don't understand it, but they can, and that's okay. 
For me, it's seeing that mountain and the, and the clouds just barely coming over and the rest of the sky blue, and it just excites me to see something I've seen every single day, and I'm happy that God allows me to see that. That's how I see John 3:16. Even though I've seen it a million times for years and years and years, every time I come upon it, I go, oh, man, this is good. This is good. This is definitely worthy of all of our attention and all of our interest, including memorizing it. And there are uh, so many, hundreds of different ways to understand this verse and apply it and make it ours, but I want to make it rather simple today. I want us to see this verse as what it is. It's a great statement about what Jesus has just been talking about that John makes on our behalf so that we would understand what motivates Jesus to be so clear and passionate with Nicodemus that man-made human religion rules and regulations do not draw you near to God, but it condemns you. And the only way to be free from that condemnation is to read verse 16. For God so loved the world that it motivated him. That love was so passionate and so singular and so devoted and so purposeful on God's part that as he saw creation, as he saw the world, as he saw you, in a real sense, his heart grieved that we were separated from him. And he longed for and yearned for a relationship not based on your obedience because you could not give it, but based upon his grace, which offers it freely to anyone who believes. And that love motivated him. He saw what sin had done, how death had gripped us, how trials and pains and sorrows annoy us, how we get jealous and depressed and angry and frustrated and sad. He's seen the heart that led someone to commit suicide. He's seen the heart that led someone to commit murder. He's seen the heart that's led people to war nation against nation. But he loved us. He saw all of that evil and wickedness, all of that deception, all of that hypocrisy, and it didn't persuade him to stop his plan. Because his plan was not motivated about how good you might be. His plan was motivated on how much love he had for his people. And it motivated him to the greatest of all demonstrations of love. He didn't send a bouquet of flowers. He didn't send candy. He didn't take you to your favorite restaurant. He didn't give you a free day where you could do anything. He didn't even give you a million dollars that you could spend on anything you wanted. He didn't give you a vacation home or a vacation. He didn't give you long life or good health or beauty or strength or smarts. The way he decided to show his love to you, John says that he gave his only son gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him, believes in Christ, believes in the Messiah, the overcoming God King, anyone who believes in him, 
puts their faith and trust in him, acknowledges that he is their Lord and Savior, he says, this is what will happen. Should not perish, but have eternal life. It's not that we're promised never to die. Death is part of our consequence of sin that we cannot get out of unless the Lord returns today. Death is something that we're going to experience, but once we die in Christ, being born again and regenerated, being one of his children, we will not perish. We will not endure the flames of condemnation of eternal hell. We will enjoy the gift and beauty of heaven, which is unexpressibly joyful and peaceful, and we have a hard time grasping what that means that we'll be with him forever and ever and ever for all eternity without sin. We have a hard time comprehending that. But the truth is, we're not going to perish when we die if we believe in him. And so God's love is so huge and so motivated to do something that he's granting us a clean slate of forgiveness and righteousness as if we had never sinned through Christ not through your obedience to a set of laws, not your obedience to the Ten Commandments, because I guarantee you not one of you obeyed all Ten Commandments. What about five? Have you perfectly obeyed just maybe five of his commandments? All right, I don't see any hands. I'll go to one. Have any of you obeyed at least one of God's commandments your entire life? I, I would really encourage you not to raise your hand. All right, please, please, don't be that one that goes, I'm going to show Tim, yeah, I've, yeah, I got the first couple. <laughs> you don't. You spend enough time with me, we'll talk, and I'll show you where you sin because it's exactly where I've sinned, and we're no different. We're sinful human beings at the mercy of God, and God's mercy says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a way out, and it's not through trying harder. It's through submitting and understanding that I can't do it. You can't do it. Just like Nicodemus couldn't do it. It takes the love-motivated plan of God the Father to send his only son to die your death, what you deserved. That is a great statement about God, about Christ, and about you. Because it's a statement that gives hope. Because if Nicodemus couldn't be saved by doing good works and by being obedient to the law and not gargling, covering his mirror and killing chickens, if he couldn't survive to reach God, you have no hope. Because there is no way you obey laws better than Nicodemus or better than Paul. but it's not based on our obedience. It's actually based on how well Jesus did his job. It's all based on how well he was obedient, how well he fulfilled the law, how well he took your place. And so ask the question, do you think Jesus did a good job? And you say, yeah, he did a good job. Did he do a perfect job? And our human pride is going to have to melt before that question. 
because we're going to have to admit I'm not the perfect one here. I'm not even the good one here. Jesus is good. And Jesus is perfect. And he accomplished all that God gave him to do. There's more to this section. And verse 17 talks about some of the plan that God had in all of this. His love motivating him to send the Son, believing upon the Son, and having eternal life, having a time with God that is uninterrupted by sin, pain, or disappointment. Not a single tear or sorrow will be experienced in heaven. He says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So often, the unbeliever, their only experience with a Christian is when the Christian tells them what they should and shouldn't do. Right? What they should and shouldn't do. Oh, you shouldn't listen to this kind of music. You shouldn't go to that kind of movie. You shouldn't dress like this. You shouldn't act like this. You shouldn't drink this. You shouldn't eat this. You should do this and this and this and this. And all they see is all these do's and don'ts of the Christian life. God didn't send Christ into the world to give us a list of do's and don'ts. He came into the world to save us, to bring us life, eternal life, real life, real change. To where the do's and don'ts, hey, we still got them. But my relationship's not based on God, based on the do's and don'ts. So why are we telling others about all the do's and don'ts? You better do this, you better do that. Oh, you become a Christian? Stop that. Yes, naturally, changes happen and we become mature in our faith and we sin less and less and we live holy more and more. That's an obvious fruit of the Holy Spirit changing our lives. But even Christ who's great, good, and perfect, came to give the message not of condemnation, but of hope. He says, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but in order the world might be saved through him. You see, our message should be pointing people to Christ. And yes, pointing people to Christ is going to bring conviction. It's going to bring a sense of, well, I'm not there. It's going to bring a sense of, well, I'm not that good. I can't do that. It should always bring us to the sense of, I can't. Anytime we talk about the greatness and glory of Christ, his perfection, it should immediately affect us by saying, but I can't do that. Because that's right. Because that's why I'm called the Savior. I save you. I don't help you. I save you. You weren't just partly dead or mostly dead. You were dead. And he breathed life into you. And God says that was a plan from all along. Not that the message would be of condemnation, but the message would be of salvation. So when we talk with the world outside of this confined wall of the church, or in our experiences, our message should be more about, I want to tell you about the person who gives hope. And yes, he's going to change you. Your life is going to look different. You're going to sin less, and you're going to glory in him more. But in order to get there, it's through trust and faith and belief, not through obedience. 
Not through rules and regulations. You can never make yourself good enough to come to God. Because there's only one good, perfect substitute. Jesus Christ. That needs to be our message. Not a condemnation about what gender is real and, and what kind of marriage relationship is real. or Very important, yes. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is there's one who can make you perfect. One who can make you good and great. And it's Christ. Not you, not the church, not rules, nothing else. But the one whom God has sent. That is a great plan for evangelism. Presenting the greatness of what Christ has come to do, to save everyone who calls upon his name. They shall be saved. Verse 18 continues this very same thought. Whoever believes in him, that is, has faith and trust and confidence, knowing that Jesus Christ is real, that he is fully God and fully man, knowing that he came and lived a perfect life under the law, fulfilling every law's demands, and knowing that he willingly gave his life upon the cross and died a real death to where he was dead. He didn't faint, he didn't swoon, he didn't have a moment. He died. And the reason he died is because your sins killed him. God judged him for your sins. And as he laid in that tomb for three days... There was stillness and quietness. Nothing. Until the third day. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And ascended up into the heavens and sits upon the right hand of God in all of his glory and might and power and rule and dominion and has promised he's going to come back one day. And all the dead will be raised. And the world will be separated into those who are condemned, who try to live a good life according to their standards, separated from those who had no standard, couldn't live it, didn't want to fake it, and said, Christ, you need to be my all in all. I can't do it without you. You believe in that. You trust in that. You acknowledge that your sins have separated you from God and it takes a miracle of Christ to bring you near to him. It's exactly what the verse is talking about. And in that verse, whoever believes in him, there is a certainty, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, there is certainty in that verse. There is certainty that if you believe in him, he has you in his hands. He's got you. You are safe. In fact, you are better than safe. You are, in God's eyes, just as if you've never sinned, already dwelling with him in holy perfection in heaven. But just as certain as that, if you reject Jesus Christ, 
if you deny the truths that I just mentioned, it is just a certain he is not going to let you skate through. He is not going to let you manipulate your way into heaven. He is not going to let you earn your way into heaven. He is not going to let you sweet-talk him into heaven. See, I have a, I have a strange superpower where uh, when I get in sin, I'm able to do this thing called justifying it. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but my superpower is renowned. I can start with a sin, and then I can go all the way down the line of the sin and end up blaming you for it. You know, maybe not you personally, but my goodness, I, the driving problem that I have. It's, I don't have the problem. Everybody else does. Why, why is my car the only car in the entire country that has turn signals? I have no idea. See, I'm able to justify and blame shift everything I've ever done wrong in my life to someone else. How many people think that kind of attitude is going to work with God? No. It's going to be me and God on that judgment day. And I either have to defend myself or I have to plead. Someone else has to defend me. There are a lot of people who are able to blame shift and con their way through relationships in this world that at the moment of death, reality is going to strike them that they cannot manipulate God. He is super clear. Be holy because I'm holy. That's my standard for entrance into heaven. Perfect holiness. And every time you say, well, God, it wasn't my fault. I was born poor. I was born a minority in a different culture. I was, you know, I, I, I didn't have a good education. You know, I, I had physical problems. I had mental problems. I had relationship problems. I had money problems. I had political problems. God, it's not my fault. He's given you the opportunity, if not just this moment, in your past, to hear that the only hope you do have is believing in Christ. Nicodemus couldn't figure that out, even though Jesus was right in front of him talking to him about this. He was confused. How can this be? My whole life has been based on how good I am and how much better I am than other people. So that makes me really, really good since I'm so much better than other people. Jesus wipes every bit of that away it says, I'll tell you what the certainty thing in life is. Yeah, we know taxes are one of those certain things, and death is one of those certain things. But after death, there's a great certainty. You are either one of God's children enjoying the beauty and fruit of eternal life, not condemned, or you are one who is already condemned because you don't believe in Christ as your Savior. It's only two options. Only two options. Then in verse 19 through 20, we have somewhat of a, another great statement, but it also is a little bit of a terrifying statement, just like we saw in verse 18. 
And this is judgment. So if we're wondering about the condemnation, those who are condemned, who do not believe that Christ is their Lord and Savior, regardless of how good they may have been to outward rules and regulations, no matter how devoted they were to a false religion, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good of a Muslim they were, a Mormon they were, uh, you know, a, a Jain monk. It doesn't matter how good they were at being a Hindu or a Buddhist. It doesn't matter how perfect they were in that world's religion. If they are not believing in Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are condemned. Condemned. And verse 19 talks about this. And this is the judgment. This is part of the condemnation. The light has come into the world, which we've already seen in chapter 1, is identified with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is bringing clarity, holiness, and absolute understanding. So, this is judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I have to say, John, at this point, is really um, Mr. Obvious. Um, of course, people who sin, they don't want their sin exposed. They don't want it to come to light. When they go before a judge, they want to hide their deeds. They want to hide what happened. They want to hide why. They want to give every reason, excuse, and blame, and coerce, and manipulate as much as they can. But they want to hide. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be noticed. And here's where it gets a little real for us, even as God's children. Don't we try to hide from others the sin that kind of sometimes swirls in our thoughts and in our mind and in our planning and in our relationships? Don't we like to show off the good side of things and kind of hide the pains and sorrows that we might be struggling with? See, it's human nature to want to respond like Adam and Eve when they were caught sinning in the Garden of Eden, to go hide because a holy God is demanding of them a presence. And in front of a holy God, all sin is exposed. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 saw the holiness of God and fell down and said, Woe is me, I am undone. It is as if every molecule in my body is being torn apart to reveal where I have sinned and where I have failed. But we have protection as God's children. We have a defense to that. And it's the robes of Christ's righteousness. It is all of his deeds and his works that cover us and surround us and make us safe and warm and protected against every accusation of Satan. Oh, but didn't they do this? Didn't they do this? They thought this. They did this. They did that. They didn't do this. They acted this way. They did this. And every one of those, every one of those true accusations, God looks at his book of judgment of your life. I don't see that. What I see are page after page after page covered, not in your sinful deeds that you're trying to hide, but do you know what those pages are covered with? It's a little gross. Do you know what they're covered with? The blood 
of Jesus Christ. Covers it, wipes it away, erases it. It's gone. The only thing that God the Father sees on that day of judgment is the perfection of Christ's righteousness and how he spilt his blood on your behalf. The record of your sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west, God removes our sin from us. All of that dirtiness he makes as white, brilliant snow. Clean. But to the one who does not believe in him, they scatter and cower into the darkest corner they can find. I'm sure it's happened to you at some point in your life but you turn on a light in a shed or in a garage and something scurries, right? I mean, we've all had mice or ants or roaches before and having to deal with that. They scurry out of that light because it reveals their dirtiness. They want to hide from the light. We don't have to hide from God's presence when we are one of his children. We can embrace that presence and the revealing of his truth, not with fear or anxiety or hatred or blame shifting, but we can embrace it. I'm safe here because everything that's being revealed to me has been paid for. Every accusation that Satan brings up has been paid for. Look in the book. It's covered. My name is not there, but Jesus' name is there, written in his blood, that it's paid in full. So it's a great reality that if we are in Christ, we have great safety. But it is a terrifying reality if you're not in Christ because you face certain judgment. He then ends in verse 21 to kind of pick up the encouragement here. And John writes for the readers, which is us, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, there's great freedom in this knowing that as I am in Christ, everything that I do and accomplish, everything that my hand touches, every relationship and word that I speak, every deed that I do, I'm not doing for my own goodness that I would earn my way into heaven, but it demonstrates what Christ has earned on my behalf, and I am thrilled to live in that. I am thrilled to be in that. I am thrilled to be before his holiness because it is protected because it's not me on the defense. I don't have to give an answer. Christ does. And I think he's a really good advocate on our behalf. The best that ever was. The best that ever is for us. Whoever does what is true. That's the idea of believing in Christ. Whoever comes to him, whoever believes in him, trusts in him, acknowledges him, comes to the light comes to that understanding and reality that Christ reveals these things to our heart so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's key. Carried out in God. 
not carried out in my name, not carried out in your name, not carried out in the name of religion, not carried out in the name of a church, not carried out in the name of a, of a set of rules, but carried out in God. God is our focus from the very beginning. God so loved the world that all of this took place. God so loved you, all of this took place. So that everything that we have somehow in our mind earned and done for God, God gets the credit. We don't get the credit. God gets the credit because everything we've done and become as one of his children is because his mercy, his grace, his goodness has shined upon us. We don't heap good deeds upon us to have a pat on the back or to have a plaque put up somewhere for us. The only plaque we need put up for our life is we're here by the grace of God. By the grace of God. And if that type of relationship with God is what you want, and you're struggling, how do I really get that? Please come talk to me. I want you to have that. I want you to experience it. I want that to be your confidence that no matter what life throws at you, it doesn't matter how well you respond to it. It matters how well Christ has responded to it. And he's responded to it perfectly. So please, take me up on that offer. You will not be bothering me. I will not judge you. I will not make light of it. I will not think different of you. I will be joyous if God opens your heart and shows you that grace and kindness and you embrace it for yourself. I will rejoice as will heaven rejoice. But if I am talking to you and it is striking a chord and you know that you are far from God because you've never believed in him, you just know stuff about him, but you've never submitted. I have to warn you that there is a terrifying consequence to ignoring this. Terrifying. It is absolutely horrific to experience anything of God's condemnation upon a soul. So believe in him and enjoy. Enjoy the freedom and releasing of the burden of sin. And all you have to do is say, Lord, forgive me. I believe that Christ is my Savior. You don't even have to use that many words. You just have to know before God you are undone without the work of Christ and you want the work of Christ on your behalf. And then the promise is yours. You shall be saved. Amen?